Hello, When We Were Young fans. This is just a brief note at the top of our new episode to let you know that we had some issues recording this that affected our dear host Chris's audio during the first hour of the show. During these difficult pandemic times, we're recording this podcast in totally separate locations to maintain our health, and we're ironing out the kinks in some brand new gear. You'll hear later on in this episode the kind of quality audio that we strive for and that you deserve, and we promise that's what you'll get from us from here on out. So with absolutely no further ado... Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast you can always count on, for sure. That's what podcasts are for. (laughs) I'm Chris, the host most likely to take you to an intimate restaurant, then to a suggestive movie. (laughs) I'm Seth, the host most likely to dig, if you will, this picture. (laughs) I don't know what songs those are from. (laughs) And I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to be on your side forevermore. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a medical condition. (laughs) So we are back after a brief hiatus. I don't know why we didn't get an episode out sooner. It was just, you know, the holidays and a pandemic and an inauguration and an attempted coup. It was the coup. It was mostly the coup. Yeah. I mean, it's distracting. Our last episodes were on the 80s horror classics, The Thing and the Fly, which felt very appropriate for the dark days at the end of 2020. And we are now ready to cover some lighter fare. I noticed that our podcast has been almost entirely a Trump era podcast. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, no. We only had four episodes before the election in 2016. So I'm just happy to report that the When We Were Young podcast has outlived that presidency. Yay. The people have spoken and they want more 80s and 90s nostalgia and less of whatever that was. (laughs) So, hooray. Speaking of presidencies, today we are covering the Reagan, Bush, and Clinton administrations in their entirety. Well, through the Uh, lens of music. (laughs) Yes, not uh, the actual politics, although that would be... um, Seth's favorite, least favorite episode? I can't tell. I don't know. Do we want to go an hour on this episode or three hours on this episode? (laughs) And that's all the time we have today. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So way back in episode 13, we covered a little disc called Now That's What I Call Music, Volume 1, which was released in 1998. It covered a very diverse range of hit singles, everything from Aqua's Barbie Girl to Radiohead's Karma Police. Two songs (laughs) I still have a hard time telling apart. And if you thought that collection was eclectic, in the next couple of episodes, we are doing the number one pop singles of every year from 1980 through 1999, first the 80s, then the 90s. That's two entire decades, which I can promise you will be a roller coaster journey through the wild and wonderful world of music with lots of ups and lots of downs. 
So for an opening question for you guys, um, we have talked previously about music in a few different episodes and how we listen to it. We all got started on Disney songs and soundtracks, uh, as many, many of our listeners did, and graduated on to Nirvana, no doubt, Alanis Morissette, um, things like that. Uh, we talked about having our own Walkmans or CD players in our rooms and how that was an important stepping stone in shaping our personal music preferences. So for this episode, which is about not a, a single band or nothing that we were necessarily like seeking out as fans, I want to know more about music you didn't choose to listen to. I guess I'm assuming that you didn't seek out most of the music that we're talking about in this episode as kids, but you've probably still heard most of it, um, if not all of it. So how did you hear these songs? Was there music that you were a captive audience to growing up? And do you have any memories about music you didn't like when you were young? I can say that just looking over uh, what we're going to talk about for the 80s and 90s, if I knew the song, it was from music videos. (laughs) Your song had to have an interesting music video and get played on MTV or VH1. For hmm. me to know it. I mean, I know about Chris with Seattle's, what is, what's your radio station? <laughs> the end, yeah, 107.7, the end. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, um, we had Z100 in, uh, in New York, but I was not a radio person really ever. Like sometimes I would put on the radio hoping to hear my favorite song at the moment and like re- hit record on the tape deck. But most, I hmm. mostly didn't do that. Like I was mostly just like would put on music videos and l- learn about music that way. Yeah. And a lot of these songs we're going to talk about today. I know the song, but maybe I knew it later from like being parodied either like Weird <laughs> Al or, you know, just in pop culture, which is interesting that maybe back in the day when I was because in the 80s, By the end of 1989, I was six. (laughs) You know, I wasn't taking in too much. So yeah, a lot of this I that we're going to talk about today, I didn't seek out. It was just kind of there, and I, you know, got it through osmosis. As far as like what I didn't want to listen to, like I think I was just into like pop music when I was when I was growing up. Like it was just it was just whatever was out there. Like I didn't try to look for anything. I, I think I remember, and I think I've told the story before, um, when I was in seventh grade, I went over to my friend Chrissy's house, friend of the pod, Chrissy, and she was really into a band called Tool, and I never heard of them. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't know that was, I didn't know you could have music that wasn't like on the radio. <laughs> like, I didn't know there was like right. other music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that like kind of opened my eyes that there were bands that were not played on the radio and that they existed. That wasn't just like, I wrote a song today. I guess it's going on the radio because that's just how music works. (laughs) Awesome. I love that trajectory. Yeah. Interesting. What about you, Seth? Well, as everyone knows, as I mentioned before, I spent the first umpteen years of my life listening almost exclusively to classical music and Andrew Lloyd Webber, etc. You can consult other episodes of this (laughs) podcast for that history. But kind of in terms of how I discovered new music, I love that question because it really evolved over time for me. It started with like friends first and foremost, like friends and family, because of course, like I went to church. So a lot of the music, a lot of the classical music I heard came from that. But also just friends of mine would play me the music that they were interested in and were into. And that's how I discovered a lot of the musicals that I was into at the time. That's how I discovered, you know, Disney movie soundtracks 
and just soundtracks for movies. And I discovered a lot of music specifically like from soundtracks for movies. You would get this diverse, often insane mix of music, but all in one place and from all different artists. And it would give you exposure to a lot of different genres that you wouldn't necessarily seek out otherwise. So then like the next phase of my kind of music taste developed from listening to the radio. I did listen to very mainstream pop radio stations for a lot of my childhood. And it's not the music that I've been most into like during my life, but it was kind of what I listened to, again, almost exclusively along with country radio stations for a good solid couple of years there. And it really influenced my musical taste since then. But any kind of music on the radio really isn't that influential for me anymore because now I get music from the internet. Um, and I get musical recommendations from the internet and algorithms that show me artists similar to artists that I've liked before. That started much earlier. Like that started when I was a kid and able to go on AOL and look at message boards for different bands. But the internet's kind of been the main way that I discover music and the main way that I've kind of developed my musical taste uh, after that. And the last part of your question, I believe, was about music that you didn't like listening to, right? Yeah, if, if there's a memory that comes to mind, or it, not necessarily didn't like, but just like didn't choose to listen to, like what was on when you were a kid that, that was not necessarily your taste. Again, because like I had such a specific and relatively narrow taste in music for a while. There are multitudes within classical music, and that's a whole lot of different things, but I kind of intentionally shut out most pop music. Most of what has ever been considered pop music, I kind of actively didn't listen to for a long time because I thought it really wasn't something I liked, but that wasn't really based in anything. If there's one thing I can point to, it would be like white boy bands. The music just actively turned me off to such a degree that I was like, I just do not like any of this, whatever this is. There is music I hear that's not my taste, and it's not my particular kind of music, but I have a hard time hating whole kinds of music um, other than white boy bands. <laughs> <laughs> well, surely we will be doing a white boy band episode on the podcast. There's, there's no way that we're escaping from talking about the 90s without without that i'm amazed we've gone this long and honestly i regret having brought it up because now it makes it a fresh target for mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. <laughs> that's interesting when i was thinking about these songs and sort of this other music that kind of goes along with it i remember hearing a lot of it in the car when my mom was driving because i was obviously not driving at age three <laughs> You weren't? Wow, Chris. No, I was a late bloomer. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so all the contemporary pop of the 80s and 90s, I think I kind of soaked up through osmosis in the car. I remember the radio in my mom's bathroom when everyone was getting ready in the morning, um, playing like 90s hip hop. If you want to name drop another radio station, it's Cube, K-U-B-E. That was the kind of cool <laughs> hip hop station in Seattle in the 90s. So I remember hearing that. I think the TV was on to like music videos sometimes because I remember seeing some. But overall, yeah, this music, like it wasn't stuff that I 
I really ever sought out myself. And so I, I found it kind of interesting that with maybe a couple of exceptions, we know all these songs, you know, we're familiar with them and you just, you hear it in stores, in the car, while you're doing something else in the background. Like you don't even necessarily know you're hearing these songs. Um, I think you can hear a song like dozens of times and you, you kind of know it, but you might not know the name of it or any of the words. Then all of a sudden someone plays it specifically for you and you're like, oh yeah, I do know this. So yeah, it was just interesting to me to think about the way that this all just kind of like is on in the background and pop culture just kind of happens whether you're seeking it out or not, which is definitely uh, more not with most of this music. What that made me think of is how like music is just literally dominating every minute of all of our lives, basically. You know, because music is embedded in every single commercial now. Mm -hmm. Music is, again, in soundtracks for every movie and TV show. It's worth pointing out that, like, music is just dominating every minute of our actual literal lives. (laughs) So, like, it's a very... I don't know if I agree with that. (laughs) That's not how humans lived, like, for millions of years. Like, even when there was music. I used to be a music reviewer, so I was just, like, had all the new music. Like, that's all I did for three years was consume the new music. I knew everybody on the Billboard charts. And then as soon as that job ended, I was like, no thanks. And because I don't listen to the radio. (laughs) (laughs) No thanks. Because I don't listen to the radio and I wasn't seeking out any new music, the only way that I heard new music was in commercials, at the gym, and maybe in the lounge of like work. My like, you know, we work Regis style like office. They would sometimes play like radio music. Like, I don't know anybody. <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's like dominating because like, I don't know anybody who's new. But that's a whole other aspect. Like, what you're talking about is kind of the fragmentation of where we listen to music and how. But I, I just think, like, there there is so much more music that's just a part of our daily lives than there ever was for people before. That's part of why it's such a common language to all of us. And Chris, because like you were saying, I know almost all of these songs almost by heart, immediately by melody. Even if it's only like one or two lines that I remember hearing from it, like it immediately jogged my memory. And I remember, again, like all of you, like listening to these on the radio, riding with people in cars, (laughs) you know, like so much of life for me like growing up was driving in a car somewhere because I grew up in a suburb. There's so much exposure that happened to these songs that they're seared in my brain no matter what. Yeah, I think you're both right. And you're kind of like, you like kind of phrase it as disagreeing, but I think you're in a way both saying the same thing, which is that there is all this music everywhere and it's just hard to pinpoint where you heard it or even know that you heard it, Mm -hmm. but it is there. And so like Becky, I laughed when she said that because I had... A similar job and also <laughs> stopped listening like seeking out a lot of new music at the same time because it felt like work but like you may not be seeking it out but it's still there it's still in commercials so i think if we looked at like music charts now we probably just looking at the words we wouldn't be able to identify a lot of the songs necessarily but if someone were to play them for us or put them in context of like it was in this commercial or film or something, we would realize that we have heard probably almost all of them. So music is crazy. I don't know. It's just, it's like, it's not like a movie. You might forget you saw a movie a long time ago, but generally like if you're watching a movie, you're watching it. You know, you know if you've seen a show or a movie, but music a lot of times is just there. You're not conscious of it until you actually seek it out. 
Yeah, and I and I think it's more background than it's ever been too. Just part of the wallpaper of whatever it is, or you know, like it's it's just there to like carry that scene in a movie that's not necessarily written well. Yeah, that is a good transition into talking about Billboard. We're looking today at the number one pop singles as identified by Billboard, which is kind of the authority on such things and pretty much always has been. The first issue of Billboard was released in 1894. <laughs> what? What? Are you lying to me? Nope, that is a true fact. I, I never lie, at least not on the podcast. It was old, old Mr. John Billboard. <laughs> it's Franklin. Don't disrespect his family Franklin name. Franklin Billboard was a pioneer. <laughs> Started a radio station before they invented radio. Was it founded in the gold rush? What the fuck? <laughs> you're making jokes, but you're actually kind of right. <laughs> The the original issue of Billboard was a monthly resume of all that is new, bright, and interesting on the boards. It was actually about billboards. It was not about music. What? (laughs) On the boards. Again, Chris, this feels made up. Well, truth is stranger than fiction. But it is true. It was just a magazine that was about what was going on in advertising, basically. Eventually, it moved over to talking about music. It's been tracking music popularity since the 1930s, with the first Hot 100 debuting in 1958. The first song being Ricky Nelson's Poor Little Fool, the hit that we all can't get out of our heads. (laughs) I used to play around with hearts, pacing at my car. But when I met that little girl, I knew that I would fall for a little fool. Oh yeah, I was a fool. this time there were separate charts for dj airplay physical copies and jukebox plays but during the period that we're discussing the 80s and 90s the chart positions were based on manual reporting that radio stations would fill out and also included physical sales of singles to be eligible a song had to have a physical single available and that wasn't changed until 1999 so there are a lot of massively popular songs including the cardigans love fool natalie and brulia's torn goo goo dolls iris and no doubts don't speak that did not chart upon release just because they weren't eligible what why because they didn't have a single a physical single yeah so there's a separate chart for airplay so they still have you know some sense of where they charted in just airplay but for the actual hot 100 they weren't eligible don't speak wasn't a single no it was just the cd yeah they would want you to buy the album so they wouldn't release it as a single so that they would get the album sales that seems very, like, specific and antiquated. Yeah. And they changed it in 1999? Yeah, they changed that. And now they take a lot more into consideration, um, including, like, digital downloads, streams on Spotify and YouTube. Just so you have some context for the current equivalent to what we're talking about today, 2020's top pop song was Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. Do you know that song? Yes, that song I know. <laughs> that song was unavoidable. Good for you. Actually, Chris, this has now given me the answer to your initial question. Music I do not like is The Weeknd. That I I specifically do not know that song because I do not like his music. I like that song. (laughs) I like that music video. I think for me, it's like one that I'm, I know that I know. And I've even sought it out previously to be like, do I know the song? And I played it and I was like, yes, I do. And now I've already forgotten exactly what song it is. You just know that it's played everywhere. Yes, I am. I am quite confident of that. Mm-hmm. 
So now we will kick off the top singles of the 1980s, uh, starting with the year 1980, of course. We are kicking off the 80s with Blondie, which feels very appropriate, I think. Mm-hmm. Call Me was the number one song of 1980. It was released February 1st. It spent six weeks at number one on the Hot 100. It comes not from a Blondie album, but from the American Gigolo soundtrack. It, it plays over the film's opening credits, which established Richard Gere as a sexy, cool gigolo. <laughs> Call him. <laughs> He's available. (laughs) This was about a year after Heart of Glass made Blondie a really big superstar. The song was produced and co-written by Giorgio Moroder, the father of disco. Whoa! Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know that. He also uh, produced songs for Donna Summer and uh, the Scarface soundtrack. He ended up winning three Oscars as well, including for Flash Dances, What a Feeling, and Top Gun's Take My Breath Away. So he is a hit maker. Holy shit. Yeah, seriously. Those, again, songs I all immediately was singing in my head when mm-hmm. you mentioned them. Like, I know him by name, and I know him, like, for soundtracks, but I had no idea he made so many pop hits. Yeah, he, he's an interesting character. We'll have to dive deeper into Giorgio at some point. <laughs> <laughs> just sounded like a porn title sorry you know i think that's appropriate for the american juggalo <laughs> portion of our, our episode and call me was actually released twice in 1980 the second version was from alvin and the chipmunks they covered it for the album <laughs> chipmunk punk which never made it to number one unfortunately call me love this song. I love Blondie. I rem- think that I first heard this song like off the Zoolander soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I think there was like a cover or maybe it was the original. I don't remember. But I, I remember when I discovered it, I was like an adult. And I remember thinking it was mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. awesome. So it was like 20 years after its release where I was like, this song's pretty cool. I like it. I would put it on like mixes I made. I just think Blondie and Debbie Harry is so fucking cool. It feels like they're like the 1980 version of No Doubt. And I clearly love, you know, Gwen Stefani, as you know. Like, I just think they're so cool. Mm. And I just think this song totally holds up. It's just, it's just like a really awesome rocket song. That's my music review, I guess. Like, I just, uh, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy hearing it whenever I hear it. I love it. Yeah, obviously this was uh, before we were born, so it makes sense in a way that we didn't hear it contemporarily. (laughs) But I also think there's like a section of this music that was already old by the time we discovered it, you know, versus like later on in Mm -hmm. the 90s, obviously we were there for those releases. But like this was already kind of a classic. And, you know, music has like a, a cycle where... Like, it's cool when it comes out, and then it's very not cool for a little while. And then we'll talk about it, (laughs) what becomes cool and what doesn't. (laughs) But, like, this is one of those songs that was, like, already, yeah, by the time that 
I ever heard it, which was like Becky um, much later, you know, probably in my 20s. You know, it was already a classic of the era. And, and like, it doesn't really strike me necessarily as an 80s song. It's just kind of like, I don't know, a good song. Yeah. I was first introduced to Blondie watching music videos as a little kid on VH1. You know, they would eventually play actual music. And a lot of Blondie's biggest hit songs uh, had music videos. And most of them were like pretty straightforward with just Debbie Harry and usually the band performing. And I was always just captivated by her and thought like all the songs were so grooving. Like, I I love this song. It's like a perfect little pop song. I think like Blondie are still beloved. Like again, their songs are hits that absolutely kind of endured and are all over the place still. Um, But I still think that they're underrated as like a band and as songwriters. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they absolutely kind of, they all like defined cool for me when I was a kid. And yeah, it's a great like kickoff to a mix of songs like this because it really does like capture some of the best things about like decent 80s music to me. Yeah, it really, like, this song really kicks off the 80s with some good materialism. <laughs> uh, she's singing about cars and fashion. It's, yeah, it's a it's a Richard Gere movie that's kind of flashy and very 80s. It's kind of like someone told Debbie Harry, you know, like, when she wrote the song, like, here's what the 80s are going to be like. Could you just write a song that captures all of this whole greed is good thing? And she was like, yeah, okay, I got it. Debbie, we need you to capture the decade immediately. <laughs> On it. <laughs> Done. And she did it. What I think is interesting about this song and other ones is like, I knew this song, you know, and I could have probably sang a few words of it or whatever, but I'd never sat down and listened to it. And in my mind, it was more of a straight pop song, mm-hmm. kind of like more like light and airy, like Heart of Glass. But I was kind of surprised at how much um, rock was in this song. Oh, yeah. And then also the Giorgio Moroder stuff, like once I realized that he had produced the song, like the disco and the synth that you hear in there um, also comes mm-hmm. through. So it's like, it's a really interesting, I think, transition from the 70s into the 80s because it, it has like one foot in the 70s and one foot in the 80s. Yeah, it's now that you say it, like the disco drums absolutely are one of the basic elements of that song and, and part of why it's so good because um, it's just so like driving. I also like that she's very sure that she wants someone to call her. It's not call me maybe, it's call me. Like she's, <laughs> she's fucking sure. Oh yeah, Debbie's not fucking around. We've lost that certainty somehow yeah. in the modern era. They're too coy nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to 1981, uh, where the top single of the year was Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. It comes from the album Mistaken Identity. It spent nine non-consecutive weeks at number one. It won the Grammy for Song and Record of the Year. It was previously recorded in 1974 by Jackie DeShannon, who co-wrote the song. Kim Carnes was 35 at the time that it came out. So she had already been in the industry for quite a while since the late 60s um, with modest success. But this was the pinnacle of her career. The song was inspired by the 1942 Betty Davis movie, Now Voyager. When the song was released, Betty Davis was 73. Thanks her for making her part of modern times. The song charted in the top 10 again in Australia in 2001 when it was re-recorded by Gwyneth Paltrow for the soundtrack to duet. (laughs) (laughs) The goop cover never is good. The goop cover. That's something she sells on her website. (laughs) Buy a goop cover. (laughs) She sells Betty Davis goop. (laughs) Betty Davis goop. (laughs) (laughs) That's the new theme of the show. (laughs) 
song sounds like it was sung by a sentient hangover that just found an extra eight ball in her nightstand, and I love it for that. <laughs> it is 80s to me in the very best way. It's a light confection of a song, but again, just has so much personality in the vocal performance. Um, yeah, I, I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed this song. Hmm. I like the singer's rasp. I've never heard of this person personally. I had no idea who she was. Yeah, I didn't know what the song was until I heard it, and I was like, oh, I know that song. I know that's like the chorus. <laughs> they say it over and over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't recognize it just reading the title. I thought it was a good song. It feels like very, very 80s, but not too gimmicky, not like aha or something 80s. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that this was the number one song of that year. Like, it just seems like it'd be like a nice song. I don't get what was so like zeitgeisty about it. So I was just surprised. Yeah, I agree. I was really surprised by this one. I was kind of like you guys, like sort of familiar with it, but barely. I I feel like I've heard the song referenced more than I've actually heard the song, but I I did know it. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I don't love it. Her vocal delivery kind of annoys me, but then it's kind of distinct. So I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a draw for me. But yeah, I also was really mystified, like how this was number one. Like what about, like it, it just seems so specific. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like about Betty Davis, like this movie star um, for many, many years before this, who like was very striking and she was like very attractive when she was younger. But I always associate Betty Davis more with like being tough and more like all about Eve. And so the song always like kind of strikes me as strange because like, I, I see Betty Davis's eyes as more like staring at you and about to kill you, you know, um, <laughs> than like seductive. Yeah, it's really weirdly like out of time in a way. Like it seems to me almost like a Lana Del Rey kind of conceit, you know, yeah. where like the, it's a pop song written now, but deliberately anachronistic and of a different time period or era, you know? Yeah. But the other thing was like, I I think there's something about like the structure of this billboard thing that is why songs like this end up being like the number one. Oftentimes for a lot of these songs, even if I remember the song in some way, they're not things that I associate as like the number one song of that year. Like Betty Davis Eyes, like I knew I knew the melody, but there are just other songs from 1981 and all of these other years that I associate more with being like number one hits of that well, it's era. All subjective. Mm-hmm. That's true. Of course, that's true. Yeah, I mean, these, this is basically like an accumulation of how long they charted for and how high on the charts they got. So right. I think most, if not all of these songs reach number one at some point, but they also just stayed on the charts for like a very long time. But a lot of that also has to do with when they were released in a calendar year. So, you know, sometimes they chart you know, like later after their release. So it is, yeah, there's some kind of like arbitrariness to like Mm -hmm. whether or not they're number one. I mean, these are like by the numbers, but yeah, this is not a song that I think 
I'm sure there are other songs from 81 that people would recognize more than this one. I liked that this also referenced um, a couple other starlets. It references Jean Harlow and Greta Garbo. So it's like this Frankenstein of classic Hollywood actresses. Um, but I feel like Joan Crawford must be kind of pissed. <laughs> <laughs> about the song because she got nothing <laughs> another thing that just strikes me about the song is just like it's a woman singing about another woman that yeah. maybe she kind of knows but it's not like her best friend or lover or anything it's just like she's like kind of admiring this woman but also kind of calling her out as um like pure as new york snow which is not very pure i can tell you from having lived there <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting subject for a song and yeah I, again it all seems very strange that this was like the song of the year we'll now move into 1982 where the top song was olivia newton john's physical it is from the album physical <laughs> the b-side of this track was called the promise parentheses the dolphin song <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but perhaps I'll seek it out at some point. Uh, it's the Dolphin song. This song spent 10 weeks at number one, tying a record at that time for the longest time at number one with You Light Up My Life. <laughs> for comparison to more modern songs, Pharrell's Happy and Rihanna's We Found Love also spent 10 weeks at number one. So this song was about as big as those, which were um, huge and everywhere at the time they were released. Olivia Newton-John was already, of course, known for Grease and also had already had four other number one singles. So this was the height of her popularity. The song Physical was originally intended for Rod Stewart, then offered to Tina Turner. Wow. Hmm. Did they turn it down? <laughs> uh, they did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, they did, because we're not living in those timelines, Seth. Fair enough. Uh, Olivia also kind of turned it down in the very beginning because she thought it was too cheeky. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I took you to an intimate restaurant. We were just listening to that song, and I was just singing along. <laughs> it's cheeky, for sure. It's so it's cheeky. cheeky. <laughs> it's right cheeky. It's, but um, <laughs> but it's fun. It's a fun pop song. It has an iconic music video. I feel like a lot of people think of Olivia Newton-John as like being like the prude in Greece, like Sandy. But I like that she's like a sensual being in this song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a sensual being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely just wow. like a fun pop song, but I can like, when I saw this was the number one song of that year, I was like, I can see that. It's fun. It's not complicated. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's very, there's a great hook. This is a surprisingly catchy song. I hadn't heard it in forever. Like I hadn't heard the actual song, just clips again and like commercials and various things, but it kind of bops. It's pretty fun. That said, I don't really buy Olivia Newton-John's performance as like 
matching the sexiness of the song. You don't find her a sensual being? (laughs) Not particularly. I don't know. It feels very Sandy to me. I just got to say it. But I I have to give it credit. This is also an iconic music video and like feels like a gym commercial. And I like that metaphor that they use both in the song, but especially in the music video. I had no feelings about the song going in. Like I... Like a lot of these songs, I sort of could have said like, oh, I could have kind of sung part of the chorus, basically the words physical, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love this song now. And it, <laughs> I think it's like a classic <laughs> pop song in that like, yeah. you know, like I listened to it the first time I was like, cool. And then I kept, you know, like going through this playlist and I'd be like, okay, doves cry every breath you take. And then I'd be like, back to physical, you know, like I couldn't make it through the 80s without going back to physical like three or four times. I'll say it, physical even has like really good guitar arrangements in it. Like it's musically, it's more interesting than it would let on. Yeah, and I think like unlike the songs we've heard so far, um, it's like a very like classic pop song. Like it, like when you think of pop music, I think this is what you think of. And so like- Absolutely. As we make our way through this playlist, like, you know, we kind of had a, a disco-y rock song. Betty Davis eyes like has, you know, some rock kind of roots too. And then this is like moving straight into like what we think of as like 80s pop. I think, I don't think you could get much more 80s pop <laughs> than this. I mean, until our next couple songs. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it makes me feel like I want to be like roller skating through a roller rink in tight jeans or something <laughs> like that. For sure. Yep. I always feel like that. I always feel like going to a roller <laughs> rink in tight That's jeans. True. And, yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I feel like this could be released like today without like too many changes. Like it's, it just kind of has that timeless like poppiness to me. The video is cheeky as Olivia herself might say, (laughs) both literally and figuratively cheeky. Um, Oh, it's all ass. It is. (laughs) I turned it on and I was like, this is porn. Like, (laughs) oh yeah. It's one of the videos that I wanted to watch specifically. Like, thankfully you sent us a list of the music videos for these. There are a lot of iconic videos among this list, but this really was like one of the ones that I remembered the most. I had never seen it, so I turned it what? on. Chris. <laughs> really? Chris. For those who have do not know this video, maybe I'm the only person, I don't know, but... Um, you are, we checked. <laughs> that's insane to me. You tell him, Becky. <laughs> Did you not watch pop-up video growing up? I didn't, no. For me, like, I didn't watch music videos, like, until the late 90s with, like, TRL. That was when I started seeing videos. So I never saw like classic videos at all. So almost none of these like other songs, you know, that we'll talk about. I I saw very few of the videos. Yeah. So this was all new to me. But for, for those who don't know, it's like it starts with like men in thongs, kind of like very like skimpy bikini briefs and like ends with like two men like holding hands as like kind of a joke that she was into these guys and they're into each other. But still like that struck me as pretty um cheeky pretty cheeky for 1982 no i was i i definitely took note of that because i didn't remember that part where like the hot guys pair off at the end and i was like wait a minute what it wasn't seen as like something bad or like she didn't make a face like ew like i was like Mm -hmm. wow 1982 way to go yeah go olivia i i was actually expecting to like have to defend this song against you guys more um i thought like you might have been more critical of it so i'm actually very very happy that we all we all like to get physical together. <laughs> <laughs> and we will now uh, physically move over into 1983. Good segue. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> 
smooth as silk. <laughs> the top single of 1983 was The Police's Every Breath You Take. It comes from the album Synchronicity, written by Sting while sitting at the desk of James Bond creator Ian Fleming at the GoldenEye Estate in Jamaica. Awesome. It topped the charts for eight weeks. The police had already had a number of huge hits, including Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic and Roxanne, but this one was an even bigger deal. At this time, the police also hated each other and wouldn't record in the same room. (laughs) (laughs) They ended up breaking up in 1984, just one year after this. So goodbye, police. (laughs) (laughs) And in 2019, this song was recognized as the most played song in radio history by BMI. Wow. all-time great song about stalking oh for sure um i also think it's genuinely one of the best pop songs in this whole list wow really i was not expect maybe i was like being more skeptical of your opinion of pop music i was expecting a little more seth sass against uh this one in particular (laughs) I i think the biggest thing that i took from hearing songs like this on the radio was an appreciation for good pop music and good pop songwriting in particular and Every Breath You Take is just a really good pop song, like structurally as, as like writing, but of course, like also as performance, because the police were a good band. And I think lyrically it does one of my favorite things in pop music, which is capture negative, difficult emotions, but with a very pretty musical backdrop. The kind of juxtaposition of the emotions of the song, which are like desperation and longing that feel pretty real and pretty heavy and are very heavy emotions that other songs don't tend to talk about or touch. It addresses those very straightforwardly, but in a way that's like musically very lovely. So yeah, I've always really appreciated and dug this song and I, I still think it really holds up. Of every song we've done so far, this is the one that I like. I knew really well, you know, like, and it wasn't a surprise at all. Like the other three, when I saw them on the charts, you know, I was kind of like, oh, okay, like that's interesting. This was like, oh yeah, obviously this was the number one song mm-hmm. of that year. <laughs> you hear it everywhere. I think it's really funny that their band name is The Police <laughs> in retrospect, just because the lyrics are about, you know, like stalking, being watched, um, every bond you break. Like, I was like, that does sound like The Police. Like, <laughs> they are everywhere. 
<laughs> it's interesting because like the song sounds romantic and I think a lot of people find it that way. But then when you listen to the lyrics, you know, it's like he's really like taking ownership of her. And it's like not even clear. Like, does he want her back? It's, it kind of just seems like he wants to creep her out. And so <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a threat. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a read of this song that, yeah, that's a lot more threatening than the actual like instruments and Sting's vocal performance sound. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like somebody who's sad about a relationship ending. It sounds like he's like, oh, you don't want me? Well, try and get rid of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this song. I love the police a lot. <laughs> wow, I'm I'm quoting that. I'm going to clip that. Out of context. <laughs> yeah, I started liking them earlier than you'd expect. Like in high school, I, I got my hands on one of their albums. I think that had this, this song on it and Message in a Bottle and a few other songs. And I just really mm -hmm. liked that album a whole lot. I wish I could remember the name of it. Maybe it was just The Police. I think it's funny that this song gets lumped in with love songs a lot because the melody sounds like a love song, but it's definitely not if you yep. listen to any of the lyrics. But it's just got such a good, like, it's so iconic. Like, the second it starts, you're like, that's, I know what song that is. It's just very unique. In uh, in the music video, it's fun to see Sting with really long hair, because nowadays he's uh, cue ball. <laughs> and he's playing the upright bass, which is pretty cool. The music video is very well filmed. It's like in black and white, but it's pretty boring, <laughs> which I kind of wish that there was a little bit more to it that would show just how creepy the song really is or just doing something a little bit more with the fact that it's a very unique song about a unique perspective because it just he could have just written a love song with this melody but he decided to go like very different way with it i i think it's awesome that this song was a number one song that year like i think just the melody and the and the mm -hmm. hook is just you can't get it out of your head yeah, I don't think I gave this song enough credit when I first was like listening to it for this because I was like approaching it from the perspective of all the people who like play it at their wedding and stuff. And I was like, wait a second, like this is not a romantic <laughs> song. Like this is creepy. And then when I was researching it, like I realized like Sting had written it to be creepy and knew it was creepy and also finds it really strange that people find it romantic and play it at weddings. And he's sort of like, good luck with that when people do that. So once I knew that he was sort of in on that joke a little bit, I felt a lot more warmly toward the song and could embrace it whereas like I was a little bit distanced from it at first just because like the sound of the like the romantic sound of it sounds so different than the lyrics and I, I just wasn't sure that that was what was intended or if that was just something that had just aged badly but no it sounds like that was the intent all along. We should also note before we move on that Puff Daddy's I'll Be Missing You basically like repurposed this song. Oh, yeah. For like when we were in high school or junior high in 1997. So, oh boy, that was a huge hit. That song was all over the radio and everywhere. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that song wasn't also number one, which would have been kind of interesting. It was very high on the charts. Like it was somewhere in like the top 10, I think, for the year, but not number one. But yeah, that song was also everywhere and it yeah, kind of showed how, how much the song works and is timeless. Let's move on over to 1984, where the number one single was When Doves Cry by Prince and the Revolution. This was the lead single from a little album called Purple Rain. It was the soundtrack to the film that spawned three other top 10 singles, including Let's Go Crazy. Prince was asked to create a song to play over a montage in the film. He wrote and produced this in two days. <laughs> and that includes him playing every instrument in the song. Of course he did. Of course he did. When Doves Cry is the reason Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark never reached number one, because uh, When Doves Cry was number one for five weeks. 
The music video was also directed by Prince. Uh, it was deemed too sexy at the time <laughs> for pretty good reason. That song is like hot coffee in the morning. <laughs> it is a real wake up. A lot of these songs so far have not been super high energy, especially the last one. Sting is more of a breezy song. And so like when you're listening to this as a playlist, as I did, it really stands out. Like as soon as it begins, it's like, whoa, here we go. We've got Prince. Oh, it's got like three different beginnings. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> the production is crazy. Um, it's almost all percussion. It kind of sounds like someone falling down the stairs. <laughs> what? It's great. I love that. I love that way of describing it. <laughs> and I, like it, to me, it was just immediately clear, like the lyrics of this song, you know, like the lyrics of like Sting's song, you know, work for that kind of song. But there, there's nothing really like there's not a line that you really want to take out of that. This one, it, it's kind of like poetry. It's yeah. just like you stop it's, and like consider every line. There's like really distinct turns of phrase. Um, some of a, a couple lyrics I just wanted to um, call out where um Dream if you can a courtyard, an ocean of violets in bloom. Animals strike curious poses. They feel the heat, the heat between me and you. Perfect. There are lyrics that have a quality to them and a specific character to them that almost never happens in pop music. Yeah, Prince is one of the best songwriters ever. Like, ever. I have to say I'm not a huge Prince fan. Like, I think he's cool, um, and I like a lot of his songs, but I'm not, like, this diehard Prince person but one of the greatest musical regrets of my life is when he was doing a residency in los angeles and i didn't go to his show and he mm -hmm. was doing a lot of shows and i think like you could get like 25 dollars tickets in the back or something as soon as i like wanted to get them like they were sold out i really wish i had seen him live because i think that i'm missing something like i should like do a deep dive into prince and like watch more of his stuff i've seen him perform this amazing guitar solo with like some of the Beatles and some of some other rock legends and he doesn't even sing mm -hmm. and he's just playing the guitar and it's incredible and I had no idea until that point that he was such an amazing guitar player like I knew he was a great singer and a great performer and I knew that he could play instruments but I didn't realize how amazing he was at it that's actually from VH1 yes. that's from a VH1 concert and they play while my guitar gently weeps by the Beatles oh. That's it. And if you haven't seen it on YouTube, like go go watch it so you can cry and have a good cry. Yeah. And then at one point, Prince throws his guitar as high as he can, as high as his strength will allow. And it never appears to come back down to earth. <laughs> um, and it's been theorized that he just launched it into space at that point. He could have. <laughs> 
and I would believe yeah, that. Yeah, so just this this song is just so unique and Prince is so unique and it's an amazing song. It just it oozes sensuality and confidence and you get that in the music video when he's like slinking nude um in this purple <laughs> room like it is it is a fun video to watch. Which is also a documentary. <laughs> of what he did every night in his room. <laughs> I don't know when I first heard this song, but I know that it is, there's a cover of it in Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet on that soundtrack. And it's like a choral version and it's great. <laughs> and I think that may have been like mm. my gateway into um, hearing the original. It's a great song. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an indisputable classic. Like I, I love, I love it on every level. I love the song itself. I especially love something that's super unique about the production of this, which is that Chris, like you mentioned, Prince played every instrument in the song, but this song does not have a bass track. It originally had a bass track when he recorded everything, but he decided to mute it in the final mix. And it was his first number one hit. Like this was one of the songs I wanted to kind of read a little bit about before we recorded, because it's one that I remember so much from my childhood is noting for being a great pop song. Just the more I learn about it, the more I appreciate it. Becky, I, I love what you said, Like, but, but I think it has that seductiveness and sexiness, but part of Prince's character is also just like having really deep like emotional thoughts and stuff. And like he's talking about like his mommy and daddy issues in <laughs> hmm. the lyrics of what is very much a sexy song. And that kind of complicated nature is a thing that's in a lot of Prince's lyrics and like his whole like persona as a performer and a pop songwriter. Again, it's just like as a song, it's so excellent. Yeah, I really identified with what Becky was saying about just not being super familiar with Prince. He died a few years ago, and I feel like a lot of people came out of the woodwork and like were praising him as this artistic genius and musical genius. And that was like really when I discovered that, because I feel like as kids, mm -hmm. we were just kind of exposed to the more like music video persona of him. Just like didn't have a lot of context for it, like the kind of ground he was breaking. I listened to this playlist of both the 80s and 90s for us on a road trip that I was taking up to see Seattle for the holidays. And so I was writing very sparse notes. So my note for this was sexy, fun, energy, butt pants, scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> butt pants, scandalous. That's your new pen name, Chris. <laughs> but that was like the first memory that came to mind was his pants at the 1991 MTV Video Music Awards. Like when I was a kid, like eight years old, that was super scandalous, you know, that, that someone would be... Oh, looking at them now. There they are. <laughs> show it, showing their ass on TV. Wait, I need to look these up. Hold on. Just Google butt pants scandalous. Prince butt pants. <laughs> A little bit of trivia. Uh, that is not actually his ass. That is flesh-colored fabric. Oh. <laughs> so sorry to disappoint you. Ruin the magic. So I think like that kind of imagery like took away from me like understanding that he was also like a great musician because I was just so distracted by him being doing st kind of more like stunty stuff that like at the time when I was a kid just seemed like very shocking. I didn't really get an appreciation for Prince other than through a little film called Batman. That was kind of the extent <laughs> of my Prince education for a long time. But like Becky, I feel like I need to like dive into his work a little bit more too. And like, I don't know, maybe we do a Prince episode at some point. That'd be fun.
Well, we have now made it to 1985 and the top song Wham's Careless Whisper from the album Make It Big. This was the same album as Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, Everything She Wants, and Freedom. Careless Whisper was released as a George Michael solo record outside of the U.S. and as Wham featuring George Michael in the U.S. on a Wham album. Even more confusingly... It was the only song on that album that was co-written by Andrew Ridgely, who is the other member of Wham. Hmm. So all of the other songs on the album were more (laughs) solo than the one that was released as a George Michael solo. Got that? (laughs) Okay. Got it. Totally makes sense. George Michael first wrote the song when he was 17, based on his own two-timing ways. It's about a lover who has found out that George Michael is cheating on them and uh, is not so happy about it. Some careless whispering happens, I guess. George Michael also went through 11 sax players before he found the right sound for the (laughs) very iconic saxophone in this song. Legendary sax. He is now not a huge fan of this song. He finds it a little bit amateurish. He's dead. Is it because he's dead? (laughs) Okay, well, maybe not right now, but nearing the end of his life. Chris. (laughs) His ghost regrets the saxophone. It was a bit over the top. So this song got kind of a boost in pop culture the last few years because it's featured prominently in Deadpool. (laughs) Yeah, kind of funny. I know that I know the saxophone part, but I don't think that I really knew like, oh, Careless Whisper, I can hum it for you. The saxophone part is definitely very iconic. And it works for like an 80s song, though. It's not like too embarrassing. Like it's it's it works with the vibe of the song. I think this is a great song. <laughs> it's kind of jokey now. And I mean, like, I think like that's why they put it in a Deadpool. Like, isn't it so funny that he likes this emotional song? But I, I like it. I I love George Michael singing. And I think there's a great hook and it, it gets stuck in your head. Like I could I feel like I want to like go to karaoke and sing this. As many have. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really gorgeous, like perfectly structured pop song. And I can see what he says in terms of like it, it's like a lot of other ballady pop songs that came before it. But I really like the kind of unabashedly cheeky if we could use that word here, the nature of it being like talking about how he's kind of naughty and how he <laughs> played around on someone like George Michael is an all time underrated songwriter, in my opinion. And I think one of the reasons why he was underrated was because he was a gay man. And I remember, especially at this age, hearing especially like stand up comics, but people in pop culture really talk shit about George Michael and talk about him specifically as an unmanly, like unmasked masculine songwriter. But I think part of what was so threatening, to be honest, about George Michael, something that seems now like pretty fucking brave of him is like how also kind of queer he is in all of his songs and how he's like unabashedly also masculine um, especially like in his image and his presentation but even like all that kind of symbolic stuff aside i think the saxophone part is cheesy and it's legendary but it's a really good pop song and i really enjoyed listening to it Yeah, I think it's a little hard for us to parse now um, what was masculine and not masculine (laughs) in the 80s. That's fair. Because, like, the video for this song, he has, like, very feathery hair and there's, like... Oh, yeah. There's a breeze (laughs) blowing through it and it's just, like... Was this gay or was this not gay back then? Well, in the music video, I have to say, like, I don't know if you watch the music video, but it's definitely like a love story with a woman. And he's like 
in bed with a woman, it was actually kind of hard to, to watch that, that he had to play this part before he came out later in his life. It kind of bummed me out. But I think there's something about it where he doesn't really need to come out. I kind of feel like that's a, an innate part of why he's underrated, in my opinion, as just like a really great songwriter, is because like he's always so gay. Like no one's going into this taking seeing a woman in his music video at face value, you know? I no. Well, I think in this one, he was like sleeping with the, like they were in love scenes together versus later when he just used supermodels like that he's. Yeah, I'm not sure. With. I mean, I feel like I don't, I don't know exactly what the timeline was, but I, I feel like there was definitely a lot of people who thought of him as straight at this time. I don't know. It, it, there's a lot of like pop stars of this era that you look at and you're like, hmm, you know, like that, that that's not like my idea of masculinity. Prince is another one, but Prince, you know, was, was he straight? I don't know. I mean, I, he, <laughs> Prince was Prince. He Prince was Prince. <laughs> I think that, like, I think like Elton John, David Bowie, Prince. Yeah. I think at that time you could be very uh, feminine in your performance, but you were still assumed straight until you said otherwise. Yeah, and I think it's actually like right around this time when masculinity get starts getting to be like this weird like eighties like. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone kind of thing. Like, like I watched Saturday Night Fever today and, you know, like in the seventies, like John Travolta disco dancing was like masculine, you know? So yeah, it's just culture just went to this kind of like hyper-masculine place with like bodybuilding and stuff like in the eighties around this time. But like, yeah, I don't have a sense on exactly like where this was, but I, I mean, I think he... He was like a sex symbol for women at this time, too. So and I don't know how much of a wink there was there or not. But I mean, I I feel like it was at face value, at least for a lot of people. Do you like the song? I don't know. I, I it's a I have a complicated <laughs> oh. relationship with it. This is one of those songs, unlike a lot of these, it viscerally took me back to a place where I probably first heard this song or at least heard it many times. And that was in a dentist chair. <laughs> <laughs> Getting drill. It puts me immediately back in that chair with my mouth clamped wide open. For some reason, there was always like easy listening at the dentist. And so there's this whole category of songs. This one, like Wind Beneath My yeah. Wings, anything Peebo. Oh, totally. Um, Always reminds me of getting my teeth drilled so (laughs) not the most positive association otherwise it's like it's so hard for me to put my finger on this song of like is it cheesy is it good because it's so kind of over the top um and it feels both dated and also like it doesn't really sound necessarily like 80s but it also kind of puts you back in this like very specific moment um I don't know. I just like, I I can't like really figure out if this is like ridiculous or good. Um, It does make me feel like I want to stand by a fan and slowly undress. Like it feels like mandatory (laughs) to do that while listening to this song. Please don't let us stop you. You can't see listeners, but Chris has feathered hair right now. I do. I do. And I'm rolling around on a bed with a woman, apparently. <laughs> there is a lyric in this song that always like jumps out at me is guilty feet have got no rhythm. And that again, like kind of <laughs> guilty feet. I'm like, is that it's very distinct. So it's like, is that a good line or is it a cheesy line? <laughs> No, I, I think one of the things I appreciate about George Michael's songs is that they're both goofy and kind of serious at the same time and they are kind of inherently ridiculous um i don't know it kind of 
That's a thing that reminds me of the Beatles. Hmm. Not to say that they're necessarily equally prolific in terms of songwriting or whatever. But yeah, like Beatles or Queen, like all of their songs could be very silly or also like make you feel some stuff. Maybe at the same time. Yeah, well, we'll we'll be coming back to George Michael in a few minutes. Um, and I, I think that this, will, this opinion may hold true again. So shall we move on to 1986? Do we have to? We must. <laughs> we do. Oh, we do. The top song of 1986 was That's What Friends Are For by Dionne Warwick and Friends. <laughs> who are those friends? <laughs> oh, you know, just, you know, some people who are hanging around. Uh, this guy named Elton John, <laughs> some lady named Gladys Knight, and dude named Stevie Wonder, you know, just and friends, you know. That's, <laughs> when, I, when I'm, like, casually discussing my friends, I assume everyone will... Uh, also imagine they are all legendary superstars. Yeah, I consider myself part of Anne Friends. Thank you. <laughs> so That's What Friends Are For was co-written by Burt Bacharach. It was originally performed by Rod Stewart. Again, we have a Rod Stewart uh, song. <laughs> a silent Rod Stewart theme running through this episode. <laughs> it originally appeared on the soundtrack to Night Shift in 1982. But the oh, version that okay. charted uh, was not that version. It was Dion and Friends, who all recorded their parts in different places at different times. So, so much for friendship. <laughs> But they were all together for the music video. Oh, they sure were. (laughs) That's what Friends Are For topped the Hot 100 for four weeks and won Grammys for Song of the Year and Best Pop Performance. Wow. It was a charity single to benefit AIDS research, which was decided (laughs) while Wonder and Warwick were recording when Elizabeth Taylor dropped by and that idea struck them. Rock Hudson had just been the first major celebrity to die of AIDS. And at this time, Reagan had not yet even uttered the word AIDS. So it was actually kind of an important step in raising public awareness that this was something that was going on and needed a lot of attention. I had no idea about that whatsoever. Me either. Yeah, it kind of does uh, change the context of the song a little. <laughs> know the backstory and now i feel bad (laughs) it's a charity single for aids which is very important but oh boy this is (laughs) when i turned 16 i had a sweet 16 i was very into music and very like you know adamant about what i wanted them played at my sweet 16 and i said (laughs) i do not want them to play that's what friends are for that is super cheesy i do not want it and i got very mad when that was like the last song they played (gasps) at my sweet 16 when i explicitly asked them not to play this song (laughs) 
You sent them a detailed playlist, and you also sent them a do not playlist. It was Becky's first Karen moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me speak to your manager. <laughs> I mean, the song should only be played at weddings, but even then. <laughs> that's Not a fan, eh? <laughs> <laughs> not a fan. Seth. Uh, you guys, this was my preschool graduation song. <laughs> Who has a preschool graduation? It's when you move on to the next year. It's where you get Forget your pre-degree. I majored in pre-pre-med. <laughs> and that prepared me for kindergarten after I matriculated from preschool. <laughs> this song sent me on a crashing nostalgia wave. <laughs> I will not, I shall not attest to its quality um for becky as you pointed out it is indeed among many similarly uh created 80s songs a kind of a a charity tune if you will there were others like we are the world Mm -hmm. you know and there were like a whole concert things like farm aid and bands would get together but like there were a lot of these like one-off kind of singles done for charity purposes there'll be others in this episode too and yeah those songs to me are always nothing but cheese they are pure cheese and the nostalgia wave of it was worth a listen but it's not a song i particularly enjoy at all the the music video of course on the other hand is a different story oh that was worth it yeah. that was worth it to see how coked out of his brain elton john is in that video <laughs> Because the movie Rocket Man, which I love, ends with the beginning of my Elton experience in life. When I when I first encountered Elton. <laughs> the Elton morph. <laughs> when I first encountered Elton John, it was when he was sober. So I didn't have any experience with coked out of his mind, Elton, until this video. He's dressed like the Hamburglar. But in a black velvet cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, a gay hamburger, but still the hamburger. <laughs> a more gay hamburger. So this also sent me on a flashback <laughs> to the dentist chair again, because this was another song <laughs> that I would listen to while having like various tubes shoved down my throat. Um, <laughs> Chris, was this episode <laughs> traumatic for you? It was. I feel so bad. It was a lot like getting my teeth drilled. Um, <laughs> half of my face is numb right now oh. just talking about it. I think we also <laughs> sang this in choir at some point. So when I saw this on the list, I was like, oh my God, not this song. I hate this song. The song is so cheesy. I'm kind of into it now. I don't know what happened. <laughs> no, you are not. You no. are not into this song. It did the pop music thing where you just like, you hear it a number of times. And the first time I was like, oh God, I guess uh, George Michael's saxophone player had a day off uh, that harmonica. It's a lot. But like the more I played it, the more I was kind of like, that is what friends are for. (laughs) (laughs) They just, they really do seem like friends in the video. And it made me kind of happy. I mean, they, they seem like friends who just did a bunch of Coke, but that's what friends are for. Yes. I mean, specifically, that is what friends are for. Bolivian marching powder. 
They're smiling so much and so strongly are they smiling. It is intensely smiling. A part of me just is like, is this going to like lead into an orgy? It just feels like there's something kind of <laughs> odd about it. But it really kind of won me over with the whole story behind it. And it's kind of like uh, Lady Marmalade, like for a contemporary comparison where like, like divas just keep coming out and you're like, wow, like, <laughs> like they just kind of keep topping each other. Also, Chris, I, I didn't know that Burt Bacharach co-wrote it, and that totally makes sense because Burt Bacharach is another one of the very best songwriters of all time. He's especially incredible at just writing earworms and, and melodies that stick in your head. And of course, like there's a ridiculous amount of talent in this super group, <laughs> but I can definitely sense like the influence of Burt Bacharach, and that's that's part of what makes this song so dangerous is that it is a real earworm. It also really reminded me of the song Best of friends from Fox and the Hound. So it kind of feels like a rip off of that. No, this song just reminds me of the last day at camp. And they would just play it. And you'd be crying, like saying goodbye to your friends you're never going to see again. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) So we will now uh, walk like an Egyptian into 1987, where the top song was Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals. This comes from the album Different Light, the album that also spawned Manic Monday. And uh, Manic Monday, by the way, was written by someone else we've discussed in this episode. Does anyone have a guess who? It's Prince. What? Yes. I don't think that was a guess. I think that was an informed opinion, but I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) I was so shocked. I went, what? (laughs) (laughs) That was like a triple take, Becky. Perfectly executed. (laughs) I give you a 10. My sunglasses like flew up above my head. (laughs) It was a triple axle. (laughs) (laughs) walk like an egyptian was the first number one single for the Bengals. it stayed at number one for four weeks they also were not super big fans of this they thought the song was too goofy what did their ghosts think (laughs) they're not dead they're alive they're they're able to think i'm sorry i've got the giggles (laughs) (laughs) sorry Stealing my thunder. For those who aren't familiar, the Bengals are an all-female band from Los Angeles, originally called the Bangs, but they had to change their name when they were threatened with a lawsuit by another band with the same name. Walk Like an Egyptian was written by Liam Sternberg, who was inspired by people trying to keep their balance on a ferry, and that is how he came up with this. (laughs) That was my number one question, was what does this song mean? Well, I guess uh, keeping your balance on a ferry isn't easy to translate into a pop song, so he had to come up with a metaphor. So in the song, three of the bangles get to sing a verse, and one doesn't because the producer didn't like her version, so she was pissed. Aww. All she gets to do is pretend that she's whistling in the video and shake the tambourine. Yeah, that was the drummer of the bangles. Yeah. This song was such a hit that it was one of the big things that drove their breakup very soon after this. Oh, The song was deemed lyrically questionable by Clear Channel following (laughs) 9-11, and their advice was to not play it. Oh my god. Wait, what? Why? Because it was culturally (sighs) insensitive, I guess. Egyptian? Just the word Egyptian? (laughs) Well, and walking. Oh, because they don't walk. This is a very Clear Channel decision, yeah. If you move too quick, oh well, they're falling down like a dumb. 
Like some of the other songs we've been talking about, like I thought, like I had a pretty clear idea of what this song was, just because I had heard it, you know, in the background, but I'd never sat down and listened to it. And so I thought it was a much poppier song than it is, but it actually also has like a lot of rock in it. I, I hear like punk in it. It kind of reminds me of Violent Femmes. And so like, to me, this kind of felt like music moving toward alternative music even though the song itself is like very goofy as the Bengals themselves thought it had more of an edge to the sound of it than I was expecting. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, there was, that was a band that had a lot of different influences all in one. Um, And they also wrote a lot of their own songs and are great songwriters like on their own uh, in their own right now. Um, But like as a band, I thought they were really fucking great at writing hooks and writing great pop songs and I love their sound. Like it has a lot of influence from like surf rock and surf guitar. Yeah. And that's all through this too. Um, yeah, I, I just really, again, Chris, like you, I think it was a song that I was kind of less immediately familiar with the whole thing because I just have only heard clips. Mm-hmm. This song is like referenced in so many 80s shows and movies and also is like in so many commercials and stuff that it's kind of inescapable at this point. But I really enjoyed it. I think it's a really fun song. I don't know anything about the Bengals. I just know that that's an 80s band. And I know that they did this song and a few others, but I have never even like looked at a photo of them or I don't even know how many people were in the band. I didn't know it was all women in the band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my first note is because I watched the video, it was, dude, the Bengals are hot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) True. Just watching them, I was like, and not just because they're attractive, but it was just like, that's pretty awesome. There's four women and they're fucking rocking out. Like, I, I was totally into it. This song is so silly. But it's also like so catchy. Mm-hmm. It's just such a bizarre. I can't believe this was like the number one song that year. It's just so weird. I had no idea what it means. Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but it is just like like you hear it and you just can't not go like oh way yo like mm-hmm. like sing it back to them. How can you not like that? <laughs> you know, if you're not looking for anything deep and you just want a fun song to bop your head to and like and like sing along with like this is like perfection yeah the video i think adds a lot to the song there's there's a few of these songs that like you kind of have to watch the video with to like kind of understand the cultural moment and i think this is one of those i mean it's a really cheesy video and they have these like kind of terrible special effects of like princess diana supposedly (laughs) walking like an egyptian Um, as well as Gaddafi um, somehow. <laughs> yeah. So I don't really know what's going on there. But aside from that, like just their performance, like they, they're they really energetic performers. They're very captivating. Part of the video is a live performance. And so like we'll get to, you know, some maybe similar groups who aren't quite as cool anymore later. <laughs> but like they're still cool. And that's kind of amazing for a song that like totally. in many ways is pretty cheesy and could easily, you know, be dismissed. It really reminded me of the Spice Girls, especially Spice Up Your Life, because they like just have like kind of, <laughs> kind of gibberish references to other like hmm. countries and cultures. So yeah, I mean, the lyrics to this are kind of nonsense. I also find it like really interesting that this kind of invented everyone's idea 
of like ancient Egypt. <laughs> that and Steve Martin's King Tut thing on SNL. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it was just that like people on the ferry like trying to keep their balance like reminded the writer of hieroglyphics but it was just like now if you like ask anyone like even probably like kids they're like what do egyptians walk like they would do this dance and so it just yeah. reminded me that like every like every era gets the embarrassing dance that will define them and and then this is the one for <laughs> the late 80s i guess <laughs> but yeah it, it's kind of amazing that they come off so well even though this is technically like very cheesy and could be like construed as kind of culturally like obtuse moving on to 1988 and george michael's faith faith comes from the album faith it was george michael's first solo album he's the only artist to have two number ones for the decades we're talking about in these episodes he's the only artist of the 80s who also had the number one album of the year in addition to the top single um in 1988 Although Faith did not win a Song of the Year or Record of the Year because this was the year that Don't Worry, Be Happy came out. <laughs> the album Faith spawned seven singles, including Father Figure and I Want Your Sex. Four of them went to number one. Uh, Faith was the second of these singles. And this song was not intended as a single. The original version of it was only two minutes long. And it was kind of like a tossed off thing that you was just kind of, you know, going to put on an album. And then people just kind of kept loving the song and so he added um another minute or so to it and he was only like 23 when this came out so that is kind of insane to think about i think well i guess it would be nice if i could touch your body first note I wrote down for this song after watching the video was George Michael is hot. <laughs> so hot. Truly. I love the rockabilly vibe of this song. And this is a song that doesn't really feel like 80s to me. Like you just hear it and just it sounds modern. I don't know. Like he has yeah, such a like beautiful. His, his songs are timeless. Yeah. His songs are timeless. And his voice. He has such a beautiful voice. And I don't think that people talk about that enough because he's got like a whole look to him and everything. But like his, his voice is just like, so he's such a good singer, man. Um, I, I gotta get, I gotta get more George Michael in my life. Like I just, I, this song is so good. Yeah. That's what I came away with too, Becky, like in, in terms of artists from this, that we want to listen to more of, like he's apps, he's at the top of my list now. Um, like to me, this is like one of the most perfect little pop songs ever, ever, ever. Um, it has like the kind of almost only acoustic instruments, um, but it's also like super jaunty. It reminds me of like something Buddy Holly would have written, like back to the beginning of like guitar pop music. 
Um, again, it's like it's the rockabilly look is there, but it's also it also feels kind of like fifties or sixties almost. Um, and it's just so fun, and it knows exactly when to stop. Even in this kind of extended version, I think what they added was probably just that guitar solo. I'm sure. I think it's a little gem. I love it. This is the first of these songs that we've talked about so far that I actually remember hearing, if not in the moment exactly, like at least like when it was still contemporary, like a couple years after. Mm. So it really defines, like when I think back to my childhood, like this is one of the pop songs that was playing. So in a way, it feels maybe not dated, but, you know, like very specific to an era to me. It's just so distinct. It's, it, it is a great pop song. Um, it just it doesn't sound like anything else. And yet you do hear all these like things like listening to it this time. Like I was like kind of taken aback by like the whole hoedown going on in the background (laughs) in the end, which I wasn't expecting at all. In my head, this was more of a like sexy pop song. So like that doesn't seem to go with it. And yet it kind of all works. And I have a really hard time like discerning like the song is like so sexual, but it's also so simple and it almost feels like kind of childish and playful. So I just like I have Mm -hmm. a really hard time like nailing down exactly what this song is like is it like and the video like adds to it too because it's like he's like dancing around and it's like sort of just playful and innocent but then there's also like a lot of close-ups on his ass (laughs) and so it strikes this like weird vibe that i think it was just like because i was such a like young child at the time and like the question we were kind of grappling with a little bit before with george michael is like just like was this guy like this like sexy like masculine pop star or was he like more of a gay icon and i think it's hard to kind of like wrestle with that and and this song to me is kind of full of contradictions because you know it's talking about faith and it kind of is playing on the idea like around this time also you know madonna's like a prayer came out so there was like this kind of like moment of songs that kind of reference religion a little bit and this song opens with sort of a religious sounding like organ or something it's this weird juxtaposition of like religion and sex and playfulness and yeah i I, like i just find this song so hard to like nail down and like define yeah well but chris i think the answer to your like juxtaposition there is like it's both he's both queer and very much masculine at the same time like he's not femme presenting at all like his whole image is very like deliberately calculated and masculine um and get like especially for this song in particular i think that's part of why it works so well and why that just feels so playful and kind of joyous it feels like a very joyous song even though like i, I think in some way the kind of Faith, it seems like he's talking about, at least to me, is like faith in himself or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's part of, I think, why the song is so fun is because it never like hits on the nose exactly what faith he's talking about. But yeah, I, again, it's like, I, I think it's just a great, great song. Yeah, I also wanted to like call out the lyrics of this song too, because this is one of the ones where there's just like great pop song lines like i need some time off from that emotion time to pick my heart up off the i floor. love that line too yeah mm-hmm. it's not like particularly like poetic or anything but there's just something that like really is evocative about it and i find it really interesting like even though it's kind of a sexy song like the song is actually about not having sex and that it's like he's telling <laughs> someone like he's like taking time off basically from having sex <laughs> and that's such an <laughs> unusual subject for a song especially for someone like he was 23 at this time like He's like in the prime of his iconography as a sex symbol. He was 23? 
Yeah. Wow. He seems like a man. <laughs> yeah, he was insanely hot, Becky. <laughs> like, that's the thing. I'm like, sorry, I'll calm down. Again, I, I, <laughs> I, truly, I do kind of think that George Michael was like a threat to American Reagan-era masculinity culturally. And he got hounded by tabloids all his life, but especially later on. I think in part because of what his like image as a public figure represented. Yeah, I didn't do a ton of research on him because, you know, we're talking about like a bunch of artists here, but I did want to like look into it a little bit. And like around this time, like shortly after, like he kind of retreated from this image, even though he was the like, this like global superstar. Like I think he also was conflicted in the same way that we're conflicted about like what his image should be and became like a more of a reclusive figure. And I think he probably could have like leaned into it more and maybe even had a more distinct career like in the later 90s or something. He Like he wasn't really around that much like when we were teenagers i don't think like i I wasn't super aware of him i think he also kind of had that same feeling of of just like not quite knowing what he wanted his image to be and like this made him such a icon like the the look of him in this video with like the leather jacket and the sunglasses and the black and white is like so iconic but he also wasn't super comfortable like being that image and so yeah he's a really interesting figure yeah You know, it's interesting. Um, I didn't know that about him, but I did know that two of his biggest music videos, the ones that I'm more familiar with, don't even feature him. They just feature supermodels. Mm -hmm. The Freedom Hmm. 90 video is just supermodels lip syncing to him. And the other video was Too Funky, if you're familiar. These are great videos, by the way. You should definitely watch them if you haven't. Just the style and the way they're filmed is amazing. They're very iconic. I think he has like a cameo in one of them. But he like is not the star of these videos. And I think that really fits in what we were saying about him being reclusive. So George Michael... What a what a perfect note to end on. What a great way to send out the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yep, all done. Fully wrapped up. Oh, oh, wait a second. I'm checking my notes. Oh. There is one more year left in the 80s, 1989. I don't think so. I think the 80s No, Chris, I I thought didn't they decide not to have a 1989? I'm pretty sure I remember that. Was it like a 13th floor thing where they just went yes. from 88 to 90? Okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, well, if it exists, I mean, surely in 1989 it must be Madonna, you know, who released Like a Prayer, Express Yourself, and three other singles that year. No. Mm-mm, no, this <laughs> The top single of 1989 was uh, the iconic and beloved song Look Away by Chicago. I'm not familiar. <laughs> I'm also not being sarcastic. I'm not <laughs> Look Away comes from the album Chicago 19, because every Chicago <laughs> album is named Chicago and then a number. Not a joke. Whew. Well, Adele did it, so why not? Well, she did it with her age. It wasn't just Adele 4. <laughs> Although I'm sure it would have been a very good album at age 4. <laughs> Look Away never hit number one in 1989, despite it being oh. the number one song of 1989. Wow. Wow. It was number one for two weeks in 1988. Huh. For context, My Prerogative was the number two song of 1989. So we almost had a different song here, but uh, we didn't. We have we have Look Away. If you're not familiar with Chicago, uh, the band was founded in <laughs> 1967. They're still together, still making <laughs> albums with numbers in their titles. <laughs> Look Away was written by Diane Warren, the 11-time Oscar nominee who will 
probably be a 12-time Oscar nominee by the time you hear this. She also wrote, uh, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing and Because You Loved Me. Mm -hmm. So I would say this song is on brand. In 2018, a British man came forward and claimed he wrote this song when he was 14. And he is suing them for $20 million. And if there's a resolution to that, (laughs) I, I could not find it. So perhaps it is still ongoing. Well, you called me up this morning Told me about the new love you found I said I'm happy for you I'm really happy for you Found someone else I guess I won't be coming round I guess it's over, baby It's really over, baby And from what you said I know you've gotten over me It'll never be the way it used to be So if it's gotta be this way So, uh, how much did you guys love Look Away? (laughs) (laughs) The song is fucking awful, and Chicago sucks. They have this one song, I think it was from the 70s, called like 25 or 6 to 4. And yes, that is the name of the song. It has multiple numbers in it. (laughs) I just don't like Chicago. And this felt like, this is almost like the birth of adult-oriented rock and like easy listening rock for old people, basically. I know that there was a band named Chicago, but I had never heard of this song before. And I'm literally, I literally Googled Chicago band songs and I don't know any of these songs. I can't tell you, oh, I know that one. That was. I thought, I thought they did, at first, I thought they did more than a feeling, but that was Boston. (laughs) (laughs) That was a different city. (laughs) Totally different city. (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is just completely forgettable. I'm shocked that this was the number one song. Yeah, the note I wrote in my phone to this one when I, when I came on in the playlist I was listening to in the car was just really. That was the only note. <laughs> D- did they not release other songs in 1989? So when we were first like looking like over the list of these songs, this one immediately jumped out as like, I have no idea what that is. I, like Becky, had heard of the band Chicago, but I didn't actually think that they were even a thing in the 80s, let alone still going. You know, I... I to me, they were more of a 70s band. So I was just like, well, I'm sure that this is one of those songs. Like, when I hear it, I will say, oh, of course, that song, that song was everywhere. No, I, I literally <laughs> don't think I ever heard this song. Nope. Like, yeah. in the year since at all. Nope. It, it's really weird. Like, I think what becomes true as we're listening to these songs is that ballads do not age that well as like hit singles, you know, like a lot of the popular like upbeat songs have aged pretty well. Ballads like always end up being kind of drippy or cheesy. There aren't that many like hit ballads that don't become cheesy later. This song just feels like it was like meant for karaoke. And it's always like the one guy that like starts doing karaoke and you're like, what are you singing? Like, why are you singing this? Like no one else likes the song. Chris, we need those people so we have time to go to the bathroom and get another drink. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. This is a good point. This is a really good point. On that note, shall we do that? Let's go to the bathroom and get another drink. (laughs) That sounds like a perfect time to get out. Are we done? Well, we're done with that song, but 
we have now gone through all of the number one songs of the 80s. I propose that we give ourselves our own award show. I have have five (laughs) categories that I would like us to fill out our ballots for. We shall call them the youngies. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to know, first category is most surprising. What, which of these songs in any way was like the most surprising to you, either in a good way or a bad way? I guess the Chicago song was the most surprising because I never even heard of it. (laughs) Seth, do you have any surprising? I'd say, like, most surprising would probably be physical. And it's not, like, my favorite song in this episode necessarily, but it was a lot better and a lot more legit of a song than I previously thought. Yeah, mine is also physical, just because, like, I enjoyed it way more than I would have guessed, you know, having been familiar with it very basically. So, yeah. Next category is most anachronistic. Which of these songs seems, like, least likely to be an 80s song? Faith. I would say, I don't know, like, content-wise, Betty davis eyes. Like, production-wise, it's the most 80s. And then... Content-wise, look away, I would say, because to me it almost feels, again, Chrissy, I agree with you that like ballads tends to not age as well, but it also feels a lot more like a kind of 90s ballad than I would have anticipated for, for something that was like 1989. And I mean like later 90s, more when like butt rock started to be <laughs> really big in terms of like radio hits, you know? Yeah, I think I would also actually say Betty Davis Eyes. Like, it just doesn't fit into this list to me. Like, it just feels kind of like its own own kind of odd thing. And yeah, it definitely jumped out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> best song, pretty straightforward. What do you guys think is the best of these? Faith. Yeah, for me, it's either Faith or When Doves Cry. Mm-hmm. But probably The Edge is for, for Faith. Yeah, I think I go with Faith, too. Worst song, <laughs> I think I think we know, but but <laughs> there could be a surprise. Uh, I guess it's That's What Friends Are For. Really? <laughs> it's the worst song because I'm still Ooh. still salty about being played at my sweet 16. <laughs> okay, Karen. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to say look away. Yeah, definitely. Look away. And last category is best representation of the decade. Mm. I think I'm going to go with Walk Like an Egyptian. Wow, okay. That's actually exactly what I was thinking, Becky. It's like, again, it's not my favorite song in this selection, but it is so characteristically 80s. Uh, for me, I think I would go with physical. Even, especially like if you include the music video, it's just like, there it is. I have a question. What's the best song to play at an orgy? And which one is the worst song to play at an orgy? That's what friends are for. <laughs> Yes, both. That's the answer to both. (laughs) I mean, I think Look Away would be kind of a boner killer as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Call Me is a good orgy song, I think. (laughs) Totally. I think think physical would work, absolutely. (laughs) I think When Doves Cry could work, too. Oh, When Doves Cry, yeah. Mm-hmm. That song's horny. That song is very horny. (laughs) Uh, So did you guys notice anything missing from this collection of of songs? Is there a year missing? Did we skip over 1985B? (laughs) No, there's a a person missing, I would say. Oh, yes, for sure. Well, there's lots of people missing. There's There's no Michael Jackson. There's no Madonna. Yeah. 
Yeah, to me, it was shocking that Michael Jackson did not have a number one song for any year of the 80s. Because, like, I think anyone would say that he was, like, the biggest, like, superstar of the 80s. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at, Chris, you sent over lots of information, so thank you, about the number one pop album and artist of the year. And Michael Jackson was, his thriller was the number one album for 1983 and 1984. And yet, no number one, or at least not the top song. Yeah, he did fine. <laughs> he did fine, you know, in the 80s. But <laughs> it is weird to, like, look at these songs and, like, he wasn't even necessarily, like, number two a lot of these years. Like, his songs were, like, often in the top ten somewhere. But it's, like, yeah, it, there's definitely a disconnect between um, the songs that we would think of as the most iconic of the 80s. Like, very few of these songs, if, it, like, maybe one or two of these, I would actually say, like, name as, like, the most iconic songs of the 80s. Like, to me, like, 80s music is, like, more, like, take on me, and it's mm -hmm. kind of strange that there's none, yes. none of the songs are actually, like, what I would kind of define as 80s music. They, they were all different. Yeah, there's so many, like, quintessentially 80s songs that are missing from this to, like, the extent that I was like, wait, why, why, why did they select this song back then? When we said we were doing this as a topic, I was like, "Ugh, I'm not looking forward to the 80s because I thought it would be like embarrassing picks. But like besides maybe like two picks out of these 10 years, I think it's pretty solid. Like these are good songs for the most part. Yeah. I'm shocked about the list in general that I thought it was going to be way more embarrassing 80s, like Rock Me Amadeus like shit. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I really like this playlist for the most part, especially the more I played it. There are definitely songs I would skip over and I definitely don't make it to the very end. <laughs> but, you know, like as a collection of songs, I don't know. Yeah, this was like maybe not the best of the 80s, but certainly like a pretty good representation. And I did sort of enjoy the way it moved through like the evolution of music a little bit, starting with like these sort of disco and rock stuff. And then like kind of moving into these like more like video artists like George Michael and Prince. Yeah, it, it was it was an interesting journey through 80s music, even if it had some strange detours for sure. Well, now I think we need some time off from that emotion. There's nothing left to talk about, <laughs> unless it's horizontally, regarding these 80 singles. So we will briefly look away. But have faith, we'll be back with another episode before you can dry a dove's tears. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the small handkerchiefs we have to use on this episode of When We Were Young. Oh, boy. On our next episode... In part two, we're heading into the 90s for another very eclectic mix of number one singles, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your fine audio product. I've been Seth. I'm Becky. And I've got Betty Davis eyes, so what should I do with them? Give them back to her estate, for God's sake, Chris. <laughs> All right, I'll have to do that now. Bye.